This is the fifth Sunday of Lent, and we've been in a series of conversations we're calling Jesus Answers Our Questions because we're taking our big picture questions to Jesus and uh, finding out what he will say to us about them. Today's question, uh, without exaggeration, is a question. By the way, this is Susanna, and Susanna is here to be my lovely assistant until I have her read in just a moment. So today's question, without exaggeration, has plagued me since my early 20s, and that was, you know, seven or eight years ago, and I don't know why that's funny, and I've mentioned before at Gateway, I'm a natural doubter, and this is just one of those things that uh, you know, drives me crazy. Why do we not see more miracles? I'm going to have some introductory remarks, then I'm going to talk about this for a little while, and at the very end of the day, I'm going to give you three answers. I want you to know before we even get there, I'm not even going to talk about two of those answers until the very end. So right at the very end will be the first time you've heard anything about them. These are answers that occur on a regular basis and thematically, really, throughout the scriptures and especially in the teaching of Jesus. But I'm going to focus on the, the most forgotten answer, I think, which is by far the most important one biblically and to the mind and heart and teaching of Jesus. So we'll spend some time on the main answer for why we don't see more miracles. I want to say, first of all, to toss us into this topic, there are really two ways that we come at this question. There are two approaches. There are two reasons that this question comes to our minds and hearts, right? There are those times when our hearts and our spirits are just bleeding because we want to go to God in faith. There is a circumstance in our life that is overwhelming, we want to see God change it, and we go to him asking, please, someone that we know is sick and dying, or we are, or there is a situation that is pressing on us that will not admit to change, and we go to God and we say, please help. That's one set of circumstances in which this kind of question occurs to us. A second set of circumstances in which this question occurs to us is when you or someone you know is in the place of a skeptic. And we've got our arms folded and our brow furrowed and we're looking at Jesus saying, come on preacher boy, show me something. Prove to me, because I'm, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not into this. You know people like that, you've been in that seat at times, somebody may be there this morning. He gives an entirely different response when we approach the question like that. So we're going to have Susanna read for us two brief passages, Encounters with Jesus. It'll need some explanation, but in which he addresses each of those. He deals with them differently. The first circumstance comes from Luke 7, 18 through 23. And Jesus, in this passage, has just raised a widow's son from the dead. And he has this exchange with the disciples of John the Baptist. I can't wait to tell you the circumstances around this because it's really compelling. Just to remind you of the setting. And John the Baptist hears about this, sends some of his followers to ask Jesus, what's up? Are you the Messiah? Because he's been hearing about what Jesus has been doing. This is Luke 7, 18 through 23. Let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word as Susanna reads for us from Luke chapter 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John okay, what you have seen. This. Remember this. This is how he answers John's heart and John's followers. I'm sorry, Susanna, go ahead. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, you may be seated. Remember, the second circumstance under which you and I go to Jesus with this question is when we are in the seat of a mocker and we go to him somewhat derisively and we say, why don't you prove yourself to me? Because I'm, uh, in one way or another, we're asking this question because I'm just having trouble believing. There was a set of circumstances in which Jesus gets confronted by someone who has an evil spirit in them. And that may sound like weirdness to some of you, but that stuff is real. And Jesus encountered that, and when he did, in this particular case, he actually casts that evil spirit out of this person, and some of the critics were around Jesus, and they look in and they say, they acknowledge that something unbelievable has happened, by the way. But they say, you've done that by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, are you crazy? Why would Satan cast out Satan? You're not getting it. And then he gives them, to the skeptics and mockers, he gives this response in Luke 11, 29 through 32. I apologize for the spiritual aerobics, but again, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word as Susanna reads from Luke chapter 11. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Hold. Remember that, sign of Jonah. We'll explain that in a minute, why that's so significant. Go ahead, Susanna. For as Jonah became Hold. a... I was just trying to bug you. Go ahead. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. All right, seriously, hold. So if you're the kind of person who underlines stuff in your Bible, you might want to underline that one. That's a big one. We'll get there in a second. Go ahead. The Queen of the South will rise up... Go ahead. ...bat the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You may be seated. So let's set the table this morning before we really dive in and give three introductory comments. Number one, the miracles of the Bible are real. Now, I know if you're a skeptic this morning, I know I don't just get to declare that and have it be so, but let's stipulate to that this morning, because they are, and for our purposes, let's just, let's just acknowledge that. But I want to say two quick words about that. Number one, when you read the New Testament, especially the New Testament, but the whole, whole of Scriptures. But when you read the New Testament, it, it's pretty clear. You can't help but notice that the miracles are written in a way that's different from other fantastic stories of the ancient Near East. They are clearly not written as fables. Second thing I would say is most of the miracles are recounted for us by firsthand witnesses. So the miracles in the Bible are real. So if they really happen all the time, why don't we, they still happen all the time. Well, second introductory remark is, there are not as many miracles in the Bible as you might imagine. In the Old Testament, 
this is fascinating. Psalm 77, 11. Listen to this. Now think of the frame of reference of the psalmist. Psalm 77, 11 says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. So the psalmist is, has heard these fantastic stories of God doing crazy things, and he's saying, I'm going to remember those things, which suggests that maybe those kind of things weren't happening all around the, the psalmist. Habakkuk, the prophet, says the same thing. Habakkuk 3.2 says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. Do it now, Lord. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So it's not like there was just constant miracles happening, even in the times of the Bible. There's a New Testament account of Jesus going to his hometown of Nazareth. He says he couldn't perform any miracles there. You get the impression that we have in the miracle stories, especially of the New Testament, you get the impression that, the, well, in the Old Testament too, you get the impression that these are the all-star stories, especially as you look at the book of Acts and, and what happens around the first followers of Jesus. You get the impression that they've collected all the fantastic stories and they put them together to tell the story and to bolster our faith, but these things didn't happen every day for these guys. Plus, third introductory comment, it's clear that some of the New Testament miracles are there to authenticate Jesus. In other words, some of the miracles are uniquely associated with Jesus as the Son of God. I want you to hear this thing that Jesus' best friend remembers Jesus saying, John 10, 37 to 38, Jesus says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This is who I am and believe it on the basis of these works that are happening around me. So some of the miracles were designed to authenticate who Jesus was. They happened, if you will, because he was the Son of God. And that means Jesus had a decided advantage on you and I when it comes to performing miracles. Still, there are many miracles in the Bible other than the ones performed by Jesus. I mean, miracles definitely happened as a result of the prayers of the first followers of Jesus. Plus, Jesus told his first followers that this would happen. In fact, he promised them and us that we would do greater things than he did. John 14, 12, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, listen, listen, this is the truth, this is the truth. I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. So why don't we see more miracles? As we said, Jesus approaches this question. He responds to this. It's not, the question is not directly being asked, of course, but he does respond to this question in two ways, coming from two different directions. So let's take the Luke 11 passage first, and I would suggest to you that when we approach with skepticism and doubt, Jesus does not respond. He does not produce miracles on demand. His answer is essentially, you have seen all that you're going to see. That's what he meant in Luke 11 when he used the phrase, the sign of Jonah. You remember I stopped Susanna when she was reading it. So in the Old Testament, some of you know this story. The prophet Jonah is told by God to go preach to the Ninevites. The Ninevites were horrible. They were known for marauding throughout the ancient Near East. They did terrible, unspeakable things, and they had done so to parts of Israel. Jonah hears God's word, and he says, no, number one, they'll probably kill me. Number two, I don't want them even to repent. I don't want them to turn around. 
I don't want to be associated with them. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. He gets on a ship. You may remember he's thrown overboard. Eventually, he gets swallowed by a whale, and he's in the belly of a whale for three days, and the acid does not eat him up. The whale spits him out onto the shore, and then he walks up to Nineveh. So why would the Ninevites, who don't know Israel's God and our God, why would the Ninevites believe Jonah? Jesus explained it in verse 30 when he said, just as Jonah became a sign to the people. In other words, Ninevites said this, wait a minute, this man was in the belly of a whale for three days. I think we ought to listen to what he has to say. Jesus' point is that even the pagan Ninevites knew to listen to someone after that kind of miracle. And Jesus, like Jonah, will be in the grave for three days. He already knows this, and he knows that they will not believe it ultimately. And this is all the miracle that they're going to get. This is why we say regularly at Gateway, our faith, Christianity, what we believe, it rises and falls based on the resurrection. So if you've never heard me say this before today, don't miss this. Our faith is not essentially a mystical connection with God. It is that. But our faith is not meditation and candles, not essentially. That's not the foundation of our faith. Our faith is not a religion. Our faith is not a moral code. That's what I always believed it was when I was going up a long list of things that I had to do and a long list of things I should not do. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go out with girls who do. And I knew that if I did these things and I did not do these things, then I was good because that was all about the religion. It's not. Our faith rises and falls on a set of historical facts. Those facts might be false if you're a skeptic. We have to acknowledge that honestly. It might be fake news. But it rises and falls based on a set of historical facts. A man lived. He claimed to be the Son of God. He did fantastic things. We killed him, dead, no pulse. Three days later, he walked out of the grave and he didn't stink. That is the foundation of our faith. And for those who are here this morning or in other religious contexts or you or your family members who are looking at Jesus with arms crossed, at a distance, furrowed brow, Jesus says, that's the only miracle you're going to get. And by the way, you should listen. It rocked the world. It changed reality. So, Jesus will answer those who seek. He will answer those who question and those who sincerely wonder. God is not afraid of our doubts. But Jesus will not answer mockery or derision. He will not answer the folded hands and the furrowed brow of the skeptic. The skeptic says, ha, this is silly and ridiculous. Show me something if all that's real. And Jesus says, nope, I will not. Listen, this should serve as a warning to us. It's throughout the scriptures. Psalm 1-1 says this, Blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. When we occupy that seat, God will not respond to us. So how do I know if I'm seeking or if I'm being skeptical? I would say this is a matter of the heart, and no one else can answer that for you. The chances are, if you're genuinely asking that question, you're probably not sitting in the seat of scoffers. So welcome. I'm going to add one other quick note here. 
uh, without much explanation, but listen, God has made us for himself. God has made us. We were designed for a relationship with him. That's how we were made. So when we enter that relationship and learn to live in that relationship and learn to walk in that relationship, when we come to the point, let's say it this way, when we come to the point that we want God, then sometimes we experience his power and resulting miracles in amazing ways. That's how it works, because miracles are real. But when we want God's stuff, when we just want the stuff that he might be able to do for us, and we don't really want him, we will not see him move. That's how it works. Okay, there's a second way when we have this question that we approach it. That is, when we come to Jesus with faith, based on a real relationship with Jesus, And we need him to respond because of some circumstance in our life. And in those situations, he does respond. He says to us, in effect, miracles are real and they're happening. They've been happening all across the centuries and they're happening even now. I know you're discouraged, but look to me and I'll help you see it. If we go back to Luke 7 exchange with John's disciples, I want you to notice how Jesus answered John's disciples. The disciples of John come to Jesus and they say, what's up? Are you the Messiah? Jesus says, in effect, go back and tell John what you've seen. Remind him that miracles are happening and they're going to continue to happen. Go tell John about it. That's still Jesus' answer today to the question of faith. There are lots of miracles happening around us. Let me remind you. I frequently get to hear about some miracle that's happening or has happened in your life. Or I read articles periodically about miracle, incredible stuff that's happened somewhere in the world. Honestly, I want to, for those of you who don't know the story, I'm not going to tell you this morning, but this place, the place you came to visit this morning is a miracle. And I don't mean that in some so-so sense. This is a miracle. Every time you face a tremendous difficulty and you make it through, that's a miracle. The right way to face some of the circumstances that some of you are facing right now, the right thing to do is cave and just drink constantly or let go of your life. That's the normal way of responding. When you don't respond that way, that's a miracle. I have a miracle story myself that some of you know. Apologies to those of you for whom this is the ninth time. But years ago, uh, I had a dream, really, a dream dream. And when I woke up from that dream, I knew that the dream had been from God. Diane and I were living in Boston. I was pastoring a church up there, and we had been asked by a group here to come here and plant a church in Northern Virginia. And we hated Northern Virginia because every time we went through here on our way to vacation in the Carolinas, we would drive down 495, and we would think, where are all you people going? But anyway, before we had moved here, we, were, we told them no, and then they kept asking. We were moving towards saying yes, and at one point during that process, I had a dream. I should tell you to set this dream up that I have a very, very terrible family history of heart disease. My father died of a heart attack when he was 50. All four of my grandparents died of heart attacks. On my father's side, he had seven brothers. Six of them died of heart attacks, and the oldest was 55. He had four sisters. They all died of heart attacks. I saw was in a film when I was in college in a, a PE class. We used to have to take PE in class. This was in the 1890s, boys and girls. But I saw a film in my PE class about a family. They were trying to demonstrate the impacts of, you know, family history and genetics and blah, blah, blah. As an example, they took heart disease and they told the story of this family whose last name was Allen, by the way, which terrified me. And they 
told this story of how this baby's chances of having a heart attack are or heart disease based on his family history. And the family history that they outlined was not as bad as the family history I had. When I was 22, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure, very high blood pressure. They uh, put me on medication and began to moderate that. And so fast forward, now I'm in my late 30s, and Diane and I are thinking about this major decision in our lives. I have a dream one night. And in that dream, God put me to sleep. I was with some other people tell you about the whole dream another time. It, had, it eventually had to do with us coming to, here to this church. But God put me to sleep in my dream. You know how weird dreams are. And he told this group of people he's going to heal us. So I prayed in my dream, I prayed, God, heal my heart. Because it's not an exaggeration to say at least monthly and for periods of my life, sometimes daily, I would think about and worry about my own health. I got to be 25 years old and I was terrified. I thought my life is half over. So I prayed in my dream, God, heal my heart. Woke up in my dream. Some dramatic stuff happened. You'll hear about it another time. Then I woke up in real life. I knew it had been an incredible dream. I told a few people about it, told Diane about it, and this was awesome. So not long after that, in small part because of that dream, we moved to Northern Virginia. We come here to be with all of you. I had always been told, you know, because of your family history, when you get to be 40 years old, you have got to pursue serious heart health, you know, with medicine, etc. So when we moved here, well, I wasn't 40 yet, but when we moved here, I decided that I wanted to try to find a cardiologist just to be my general practitioner. It was hard to do then, impossible now. But I found one in, associated with the Reston Hospital who would be my general doctor, and he was a cardiologist. So I go into him for the first time, and this was, again, 104 years ago. So this was before medicine is as it is today, and you would go in for a physical with this guy, and he took two hours with you. So, you know, we sit down, we're doing the physical with this doctor in Reston, and he starts asking me about my family history. He does exactly the wrong thing. He's, you know, everything I tell him, he goes, wow. And he writes it down. Don't do that. Anyway, so uh, he takes my blood pressure, and it's okay. A little high, but, you know, it's moderated. And he says, look, the blood pressure medicine that you're on is old. It's hard on your body. There's better classifications of medicine. Now, let's take you off the blood pressure medication and get a baseline blood pressure, and then We'll begin to apply different medicine until we get it moderated. Okay, I want you to go home, go off your medication, come back in two weeks, let's just get a baseline blood pressure, and then I'll write your prescription. We'll see if we can get it moderated with a better medication. Great. So I go off two weeks, come back, go in. All they're going to do is take my blood pressure. He's going to write me a prescription. I go back, nurse straps a, a thing to my uh, arm, and she takes my blood pressure, and she says, wow, don't do that. Well, I, honestly, I thought they're about to rush me to the hospital. She says, can I do the other arm? Why? Oh, no, it's, it's, it's good. Just let me try the other arm. So she tries the other arm. She says, let me go get the doctor. Why do you need to go get the doctor? I just want him to see this. So she goes out and gets the doctor. He comes back in, takes my blood pressure, takes the stethoscope off, and he says, your blood pressure is 120 over 80, which is perfect. He said, I don't understand. It wasn't this good when you were on medication. What happened? I don't know what happened. You're the doctor. He said, well, have you changed your diet? I said, I've got little kids. If you mean more McDonald's, yes. <laughs> he said, well, Joe, go buy a blood pressure a cuff and take your blood pressure four or five times a day. Come back in a week. I was stunned. I, I, I leave the doctor's office. I drive home, and my wife, who's more godly than I am, I, I, I tell her this story, and Diane says, it's your dream. God has healed you. I had a physical about a year ago, and he did my blood pressure. It was better than 120 over 80. So 
already outlived my father, and I'm planning to be here for a while. There's one more important thing to note about the Luke 7 passage. So if you miss everything else, don't miss this. When John begins to question Jesus, don't miss this. When John begins to question Jesus, and when he sends his followers to question Jesus, John is doing this from prison. He's in a really bad place. I think John is doubting. I think he's wondering, what is going on? I thought you were the Messiah. Why am I still in prison? What's going on? Why aren't you doing something? Jesus answers, John, kingdom stuff is really happening. John says, well, if kingdom stuff is really happening, then why am I still in prison? I thought the Messiah was going to dry all tears. I thought Messiah was going to bring justice, real justice, to the afflicted and downtrodden. I thought Messiah was going to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus answers, John, I will. I'll do all of that and more, but not yet. This is what theologians have referred to over the centuries as the already not yet truth of the kingdom of God. Miracles are happening today, but even when miracles do happen, they are temporary. The only exception to that is the miracle of someone giving control of their life over to Jesus and coming into a real relationship with God. Other than that, miracles are temporary. They happen because the kingdom of God is here, but they're temporary and they're not everywhere because the kingdom of God is not fully here. I got to explain to you real briefly just how Jesus talks about this. And I want us to see two passages, Luke 17, 20 and 21. Jesus makes the point that the kingdom of God is already here. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, look, the kingdom of God isn't coming in ways you can observe, nor is somebody going to say, look, here it is, or there, behold, for the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or that could be translated among you or within you. The kingdom of God is here. It's already in our midst. And then, Luke 19. He says this. He's answering kind of the same concern, but he's going to come at it from the opposite direction. And he's been asked about the kingdom of God, and he starts to tell this parable. And just listen to how he sets the parable up. As he heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said to them, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. It's not fully here yet. I'm going to get it, in effect. Here's what that means. That means that I can have a dream and that dream, I believe, and believed at the time, came from God. And then months later, that dream miraculously manifests in the real world, in my life, in a way that's miraculous. It means my heart can be healed. But it also means that one day, some of you will attend my funeral. That miraculous healing is temporary. In time, Jesus will make it permanent. Injustice will be conquered. Sickness and disease and death will be no more. That may sound like pie in the sky thinking, but it's not. It's real. And it's going to happen. But it's not here yet. I like the way one author described it. 
he called the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus the presence of the future. So as if this future reality, the kingdom of God, where all justice is going to be satisfied, it is broken in and we get glimpses of it now in the present, but not in full. And Jesus, the future is broken into the present, but only partially. So let's end. Why do we not see more miracles? I told you I was going to give you three answers, and I wasn't even going to talk about the first two until the end. Here we are. The first reason that we don't see more miracles is because we don't have enough faith. At least five times in the New Testament, Jesus looks at his followers when they're going through a tough time and they're facing something that they don't understand, Jesus looks at them and says, oh, you of little faith. That story about his hometown in Nazareth that I was telling you when he went, he couldn't do any miracles. The scripture tells us that he couldn't do miracles because they didn't believe. The second reason that we don't see more miracles is because we don't ask. James 4.12, James, one of Jesus' followers, says in chapter 4, verse 12, you have not because you ask not. Every Sunday morning here at Gateway, there are a group of people who gather over there to my right and your left for prayer, and they'll take any concern, and they often have zero customers because we don't go to them and ask for prayer. Over the last four weeks, between services, between the 9th service and the 11th service, the elders have gathered upstairs and anointed someone with oil and prayed for them because they've asked. Because in the book of James, again, it says, if you're sick, call the elders, tell them to pray. And these people have done that. But you haven't. I haven't. You've gotten sick, you've come here very depressed, or physically sick, or you've heard bad news from the doctor, and you left without telling anyone. You didn't get anybody to pray for you. We don't ask enough. But the third reason, and the main reason, that we don't see more miracles. I want to tell you real quickly why this is the main reason. There is this thinking all over the world now, especially those of you who have come from South America or Africa. In Protestant circles in South America and Africa, this thinking is, has become very, very prevalent that the main reason that we don't see miracles is because we don't have enough faith. And that's not true. That's not the main reason. I want you to know flat out that gives us entirely too much responsibility and too much power. It's not on you. It is His power. But you do need to exercise faith. You and I do. But the main reason that we don't see more miracles is because the kingdom of God is not fully here yet. A day is coming when there will be no more tears. Diane and I were, I don't remember where we were, coming back from somewhere yesterday. and We'd seen something new and well, that building wasn't there. And, you know, Diane was noting how she hates change. And she said, I don't think we were made for this. This just saying goodbye to people and people dying and this deep sadness you feel and all this stuff changing like this. I, there's something in me that tells me that we weren't made for this and we weren't. We were made for healing and health and unity. We weren't made for our social weirdnesses and awkwardnesses. We weren't made to hurt one another. We weren't made to be the victims of injustice. But because the kingdom of God is not fully here, that's still what we experience. And that's the main reason that you and I don't see more miracles. But the kingdom of God is partially here. 
And that's why you and I should ask and ask constantly and ask with faith. So if you need prayer today, don't leave without it. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts. You have them. You know our needs before we ask. But this morning, because you told us to, we ask anyway. For those of us, Lord, who need physical healing, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would do that. For those of us who need the deepest kind of guidance, we are profoundly confused. I pray that you would give wisdom and that you would guide us. For those of us who are struggling with shame and guilt, cleanse us and set us free. Hear us, Lord, and whatever you have spoken to any of us this morning, I pray that you would seal it. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray, and all God's people said, which means you agree.
You guys may go in peace. Have a great week. <laughs>